Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the fantasies and fallacies of anything to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we look at news stories, including Americans steer away from autonomous parking. In the lead up to the Bathurst race, we talk to the doyen of motor racing commentators, Mike Raymond. We road test the Mercedes People Mover, or as they like to call it, a saloon car that will take up to eight people. And in our panel discussion with Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including Hitler's car exerts grim fascination. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, let's get the program going. First, the news. According to a new survey, nearly 80% of American drivers are confident in their parallel parking abilities and only one in four would trust automated parking technology. But while we may not like the idea of technology taking over, it turns out the computer does it better. Compared to drivers that manually parallel park with the aid of a standard backup camera, the survey found drivers using self-parking systems experienced 81% fewer curb strikes, 47% fewer manoeuvres, with some systems completing the task in as little as one manoeuvre. Self-parking systems were able to park a vehicle 10% faster, and self-parking systems were able to park 37% closer to the curb. A light that projects a bicycle symbol onto the ground 6 metres ahead of a cyclist to make them more visible to drivers is being tested in London. The Blaze Laser Light trial involves 250 bicycles for hire, with the front light built into the frame. It aims to increase cyclists' safety by giving them a bigger visible footprint and to overcome drivers' blind spots. There has been eight cycling deaths in London this year, seven of which involved heavy goods vehicles. Critics say that dedicated cycle lanes would keep cyclists safer, Santander Cycles said the trial was being funded as part of its annual budget, and if the trial was successful, it hoped to extend the laser light technology to more of its bicycles. How do you highlight the weakness in your traffic planning system? In Belgium, they had the idea of proposing their traffic jams to receive UNESCO World Heritage Status. Supporters of the idea insist that the country's car-clogged roads deserve celebration as achievements that are uniquely and specially Belgium. In 2014, Belgium's two largest cities, Brussels and Antwerp, both had the worst traffic congestion of any city in Europe, a place they earned thanks to a combination of poor road planning, suburbanisation and generous company car policies. To support this tongue-in-cheek campaign, a video was produced with a pompous British actor extolling the splendour of Belgian congestion. Not surprisingly, the video and campaign apparently comes from the Belgian National Rail Company. Dad is the clear winner when it comes to picking which family member is the best driving instructor, according to the South Australian Motoring Club, the RAA's, survey of learner drivers. The results were revealed following a survey of more than 3,300 students 
prior to this year's StreetSmart High Road Trauma Awareness Event. 53% of students chose Dad as the best family member to teach you to drive. Mum was next in line with 35% of students, followed by siblings, 5%, and friends, a mere 2%. However, the independent driving instructor was still thought to be the best. 63% of students said they selected their own driving instructor, but the choice was based on their parents' advice in 37% of the cases. One of the world's rarest Harley-Davidson motorcycles sold for an Australian auction record of $600,000. Built around 1927, the 8-valve V-twin racer had a scramble-type sidecar and is reputedly one of fewer than 50 examples built by the American manufacturer, some say considerably less, from 1916 to 1928. The bike has been locked away in dry storage for much of the past 80 years. When new, these powerful bikes were deliberately priced out of the reach of private enthusiasts and were only offered to up-and-coming racers of the times. They cost US $1,500 new at a time when even the most expensive bikes usually sold for no more than $350. Also at the auction, a beautifully restored 1955 Jaguar XK140 fixed-head coupe fetched $125,000. And it wasn't just petrol engine classics at the auction. A blue and white child scooter with yellow wheels sold for $450. Gender equality is extending to all areas. In Queensland, Police Minister Joanne Miller praised the skill and dedication of the first Queensland female officers to become qualified police motorcycle officers. Senior Constables Rosanna Herrickson and Linda Tajnay have just completed three weeks of a vigorous training course. Police Commissioner Stewart said, The course is as much a mental game as it is a physical one, with every rider having to dig deep. Being a police motorcyclist requires a level of self-reliance and alertness while riding, way above the normal requirements of traditional police patrol work. The minister said, I am told that since Queensland had motorcycle officers, only one other female officer had started the course. That was in the late 1970s and the officer found out she was pregnant and withdrew from training. And that has been the news. If you are a motorsport enthusiast or a once a year follower of the great race, the Bathurst 1000, and can remember the event at any time in the 70s to the 90s, you know the name, the face, but certainly the voice of Mike Raymond. He's the doyen of motoring commentators. And as we come to another Bathurst 1000, which he gave the title The Great Race, it's a pleasure to talk to him now. Mike, thanks very much for your time. Never very nice to talk to you. And, uh, Mike, you first came into motorsport, I believe, when your father took you to the Speedway. Well, I think that happened uh, many, many years ago, like a lot of kids who grew up, and we didn't have the disturbance of the Internet, we didn't have emails, we didn't have a lot of things in those days. So a night at the Speedway on a Saturday night was something that everyone looked forward to immensely, and probably uh, that was the reason why it was so popular, was crowds of 
you know, twenty to 30,000 people there on a Saturday night at the old Sydney showground. Yeah, it's lovely. I think Speedway is great theatre. You see all the action, it's close, it's spectacular. It must have excited you. Well, at that stage it was. I was only very young, and uh, my brother Steve was the same way. He's a little younger than I. But we, uh, we were taken in by it, and at the time, uh, there wasn't a, a lot that was devoted to the showbiz element of it. We were only new to it, but we could see that it needed a bit of a, an injection of something or other. And uh, so we approached the uh, the people at Empire Speedways that were running it and said, well, listen, uh, uh, you've got to build on the future and you're not going to do it by uh, having um, pretty state old commentators uh, here just announcing the times for the, the races held. And then I went on to uh, redevelop and uh, help Frank Oliveri build a, a somewhat unique uh, concept of a speedway at uh, Liverpool. I remember that. I took my young son into there and he walked in and he said, which corner do they crash on? So I'm not quite <laughs> sure whether I had given him the wrong impression or unintentionally, of well, you, course. You didn't ask me, so I couldn't tell you anyway. <laughs> the touring cars, they're, they're a big category in Australia. Was it easy to progress into that? Well, I was um, inducted into uh, Channel 7 uh, I did some uh, some work for them on Sports World with Rex Mossop, and uh, certainly before that I did, I think, the first motorsport telecast in Australia by a commercial network uh, back in 1959 with Channel 7. So I drifted, drifted into that away from the Speedway, and then uh, opportunities uh, arose, and I had a lot of people supporting me there, and uh, on we went with the touring cars with Bathurst and redeveloped that, brought uh, a, a little... Um, Interest, a little more interest into it with uh, overseas drivers and we had a very receptive arrangement with uh, the Australian Racing Drivers Club with Ivan Stibbard and Jack Hinksman. Um, so, you know, it progressed well. Uh, we were delighted with it and Channel 7 were too because Bathurst was always a rating success for them. Yeah, uh, but you were very much taking it just out of the uh, hardcore enthusiast and taking it more towards a, a more popular uh, acceptance and interest from the public? I think there's some truth to that. Um, again, uh, road racing, circuit racing was... Uh, it didn't have a, a speedway flair to it. Uh, it certainly does now, the, the way, you know, television and so forth. So that had to be built over a period of time. You couldn't do it overnight. Uh, it worked. Um, we did all sorts of things in television. The development of race cam was, was an absolute uh, godsend for the sport because back in 1979, it revolutionised motorsport, not only here in Australia, around the world. Yeah, it was fantastic, wasn't it? I remember that little Salika going across the top of the mountain trying to pass a big uh, Camaro, and, uh, you know, the, the inside shots of that were just fantastic. It must have been a fascinating time with that development of technology. It was, and a little luck, too, because that year, 1979, there was a massive strike went on uh, at uh, Channel 7 and most of the commercial stations, where a lot of the workers wanted more money, so everyone bound tools and wouldn't go to Bathurst. Uh, so we had to make good uh, by the Mitchell College in Bathurst, and those were starting to try and do um, all sorts of degrees with uh, photography, and we had uh, guys who'd never trained a television camera before on the on the cameras. Uh, we, we had uh, uh, people from the university up there who were uh, doing notes, uh, people, <laughs> it was quite incredible, uh, and strangely enough, that that all worked. You would never have known it was seamless. And on top of that, race cam worked as well. And uh, we had the Americans there from the CBS and the ABC networks 
who were just unbelievably impressed with it. And they, of course, were talking back to their networks in America, guaranteeing that they could get this race cam from Australia if they could get the uh, rights to running the Daytona 500. So we were caught up in the middle of all that at the time. It was very exciting. It all worked, and I think it helped motorsport in general. Mike, you've added great flair to the uh, motorsport, um, and I think you've helped raise it uh, to a great spectacle and, and a great sense of uh, emotion as part of it. Uh, thank you very much for what you've done, and thank you very much for your time. Well, it's, it's, it's a great theatre to work in, and it was terrific, and I enjoyed it thoroughly, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye now. And that's Mike Raymond uh, talking about his career as uh, the doyen of uh, motoring commentators uh, from uh, those great periods of touring car racing, particularly in Australia. And there is a longer interview with Mike Raymond where we cover subjects including when the touring cars had a challenge from a two-litre series, the future of racing in Australia and how Mike coped with commentating when Formula One champion Denny Holm died of a heart attack while racing at Bathurst. You can listen from our website at drivenmedia.com.au or you can podcast from there or from iTunes. Overdrive. Answering your questions across Australia. The technical term for this type of vehicle is an MPV, multi-purpose vehicle. The street name is People Mover, but Mercedes calls their latest V-Class vehicle a saloon for up to eight people. At $85,500 plus on-road costs, it's not the cheapest, but is it the best? I took the family down to the snow in it, and Errol Smith had a drive of it as well. Errol joins me on the line to discuss the vehicle. Errol, a comfortable vehicle, as you would expect from a Mercedes? Yeah, absolutely. It was um, immediately comfortable when you got in and easy to drive. I, I don't even have to remember adjusting the seat. The only vehicle in the segment to offer four-way lumbar support, an active seat ventilation with reversing fans. It has a, a Burmesta surround sound system in here. And one of the things the young fella noticed immediately was he likes to sit up the back. We got talking uh, up the front and he could hear us over the actual speakers. And there's a front-to-rear voice application where and uh, you can improve the communication. A microphone in the overhead control panel it takes the conversation from the front driver and front passenger and uh, gives it, not too loudly, to the pa- passenger seating in the back if you want to. I believe you can turn it off, of course. There is a lot of technology in this. In fact, I think some of it isn't even that obvious. Uh, it did. It seems to have a park assist, which I didn't even notice until it, it tried to offer it to me. I don't know if I was trying to say something about my attempt at reverse parking it. It offered it to you after you parked, didn't it? Well, that's that's when I noticed this thing on the screen saying, you know, do you want to enable park assist? I thought it might have been judging your parking performance. You know, you did a reverse park and gave your message that basically said, look, let me do it next time. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time someone said that. <laughs> If you want a people mover with it, with all the toys, then this is the one to get. Although it's going to cost you, isn't it, David? Oh, yeah, it's not cheap. Uh, what, but by the time you put uh, things like stamp duty, registration, CTP insurance and, uh, and the dealer charges on it, what would uh, an on-road cost uh, be for it? 
Yeah, well, I, I could use their online calculator, and uh, it's about about ninety four uh, drive away, give or take, depending on what state you're in. So, um, uh, and that's and that's before you you chuck on some of the options of, of which we we had a couple in in our model. So we had the um, the three hundred and sixty degree camera, uh, which is about seven fifty or something, and uh, there was a digital radio, which is another five hundred. So, and the black paint, wasn't yes, it? The black paint was about two grand. Yes, yes, I, I'd. I think it's the first time I've seen a vehicle where the black paint was prestige. Usually, the one of the few ones that isn't a you know, the an, an option. I've got to say that as a people mover, it, it was very good. When we got the car, it had a, an interesting thing that the second row of seats can be turned around, so you can have a sort of two rows of seats, the second and the third, facing each other. We didn't want that. We wanted to turn them around. Turning them around was not easy. They're you're very heavily made, as you would expect, mm. and to get them into place, I wouldn't do it unless I have two people, both with strong backs. It, it didn't have the flexibility of, say, a Kia Carnival in terms of being able to fold the seats up or remove the seats uh, and, and put them in different locations. It was, and the back tray uh, in the vehicle, right at the back of the vehicle, um, was really made out of very solid metal and mm. almost took two people to carry it out the back. Mm. Uh, we, we, just, we took it out because we were going to put a lot of gear in there. We were a family of five staying away down in the snow, so we had bags and things and food and whatever. So yes. we didn't want it in there. Boy, I tell yes. you what. Well, I, I, I remember helping you putting it back, and that was, a, yeah. that was an effort. Yeah. Uh, this is, it, it, does, it's, it still has some of its roots showing, which is basically a delivery van does feel like the the seats and things are sort of attached to the floor in a industrial manner um <laughs> uh, it's the only way to describe it um yeah that's good. and and they were very they were very heavy and and sort of you know had seemed to have a lot of sharp bits with springs and things on the bottom which is fine if you if you just leave the seats as they are but if you're the, the sort of family thing where you want to quickly fold the back seats out of the way as much as possible to throw a few bikes in the back it's not that sort of vehicle. Errol, thank you very much for your time. Oh, hi, David. And that's Errol Smith, and we were talking about the Mercedes V-Class. It's a multi-purpose vehicle, a people mover, if you like, or as Mercedes would like to call it, a saloon for up to eight people. And a longer version of our interview with Errol can be heard from our website at drivenmedia.com.au where we talk about features such as its diesel engine and its fuel economy. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. And quirky news time again, and once more I am joined by Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. You've got a story uh, that goes back to, there's a saying that once you mention the name Hitler, the argument's all over. Yet you've got a story (laughs) that in fact includes Hitler and his car. Or was it? Well, I, I was I was wondering uh, what is the creepiest car to ever get in the back seat of, and um, a, a, an LA collector I think he does have the winner, and that's Hitler's car, 
Well, at least yes. that, that's what a lot of them got called because there was a big thing in the US where they'd sort of drive Hitler's car around as sort of, you know, this, uh, you know, icon of the, the war effort. Um, but um, this one technically wasn't the Fuhrer's car. Uh, it only gave him a lift twice. Um, but that's what it got called anyway. Uh, it is, of course, a 1941 Mercedes-Benz 770K Grosso W150 Offener Turenwagen. That's, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it was a gift to Finland's Field Marshal Carl Gustav Mannerheim after he chose to ally with Nazi Germany uh, in order to save Finland from Stalin's invasion. So I guess you, you know, devil, you know, um, over in Finland at the time. But um, if you got into, if you got in the back seat with its hidden compartments for Luger pistols, of course, you will be sitting where Adolf sat. Would you, David? No. Look, I've, I've got to be honest with you here. It does not interest me a hoot, the fact that Adolf Hitler parked his bum in the back of it. Yeah. I, I, I just, it just doesn't appeal to me. You know, prices you know, that people pay for these sorts of things now, I just always think is ridiculous. If he scratched his initials in the wood panelling, maybe that might be something. Mm. But I am really only interested in the car if the car has some special features about it or if it changed the world, mm. like its mm. design. Uh, well, in, th th this one does have some special features, David. It's got uh, mm. one and a half inch thick window glass, three quarter inch steel plates inside the bodywork, <laughs> and it's enough yes. to survive a, a grenade blast or go over a landmine. Um, it weighs five tonnes and it's 20 feet long. So uh, it's um, the the the, th the interesting thing is they they almost never come up for sale because people want to keep them. So the last one that was sold was sold in 1973, um, would you believe, for 176 thousand dollars, which doesn't sound like much, except that that was in 1973 money. Yeah, but even if you you know you increased it tenfold, that's still only a million or so, you know, one mm. and three quarter million dollars. Mm. What they're paying for cars now is obscene you know they're mm. paying 50 or 60 million dollars for cars that hitler mm. never went near that's no, the it's the one percenters david yeah they're just they're just ruining the car collecting chances of the rest of us <laughs> yes <laughs> i thought it, i thought it was a little bit funny that it had suicide doors it was a little bit <laughs> oh. Yeah, one shouldn't laugh. Yeah, but, a little yeah. ironic, but yes, um, yes. yes um, and um, but but what I was thinking is that um, he got he got a lift in it twice. Right. Um, you know, he he called them and and got a lift. Um, so it was kind of an Uber kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How much would you give me for Hitler's taxi? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, apparently the guy who has this in his private museum um, basically can't move it because it was sitting on a um, on a turntable, and it's so heavy it broke the turntable. <laughs> this this whole thing of it was once owned by somebody just doesn't appeal to me at all. Although I saw there was a pair of uh, boxer short under underpants apparently worn by Hot Lips Hoolahan in Mash, mm. and there, there was something within me that sort of said. Yes, I, I I understand why people may um, desire that, but that's that's another story. 
<laughs> the other thing about this whole thing is, of course, there's some neo-Nazi, you know, skinhead who'll drool over it and, you know, sort of idolise yeah, it. Yes. Yet the other question is, is Mercedes still happy to have their name on it? I mean... Well, I guess they don't really have a choice, do they? <laughs> no, I guess not. Still got the, it's it's uh, still got the three-pointed star. Yeah. Um, tell it was a... it was really called a Maybach, they might tell you. <laughs> the one they've the one they've done not, the yes. the black sheep the black sheep of the uh, <laughs> the Mercedes family. <laughs> oh, he was the he, he was the engineer who worked with uh, Daimler, of course. But uh, and they've called one of their big luxury cars a Maybach. It's just that it's not the Mercedes brand name that to, to get sullied by the association. Mm-hmm. Still, uh, all right. What can you do? Well, yes. Now, traffic noise. We know that pollution, be it noise or air pollution, is a danger to humanity. But new research suggests that traffic noise uh, uh, degrades the natural habitat of songbirds and perhaps other animals. Now, Boyce State University biologists created what they call the phantom road using speakers to create traffic noise. 31% of the bird community avoided the phantom road and the rest that were left and stayed near the noise uh, had uh, their overall body condition uh, decreased and they showed uh, certain signs of you know, difficulty with their migratory stopovers and so on. So mm. traffic noise is a bad thing. Now, Errol, is this a way that might ultimately push us to try and do away with traffic? Uh, because it's not the humans' effects that's going to do it. It's going to have to be animals. I th- well, I, think- um, I was wondering, is, is this a sneaky ad for electric vehicles, David? Is this research sponsored by Tesla? <laughs> Interesting times. And, of course, it all involves transport which is why we get involved in it. Any subject can be made to have a relevance to transport. That's our theory here on Overdrive. And, Errol, you've helped us uh, fulfil that this week. Thank you once again for your time. I can, I can only try, David. <laughs> See you next time. That's Errol Smith, and we've been talking some quirky news. And Errol and I continue that discussion and take on other subjects such as watching porn in public, particularly on public transport, should that be banned, if you look over the shoulder to someone on their iPhone, or bicycle desks, are they better than the gym? And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, David Campbell, Mike Raymond, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated to stations across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>